Hello, and welcome to the Department 12 podcast, where we talk about everything IO psych. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butina, and joining me today is Dr. Logan Watts. How's it going today, Logan? It's been great. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Thanks for being here. So Logan is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Arlington, where, among other things, he supervises research in the Pelican Lab. Let's start with where you grew up. Sure. So I grew up in Georgetown, Texas, which is about 20 miles north of Austin. Okay. And uh, spent most of through high school there and then did my undergraduate work in Abilene, Texas at Abilene Christian University. But what point in this journey did you find out about Iowa psychology? It was while I was an undergrad and I want to say I was a junior before I had ever heard of it. I noticed this is a theme in some of your guests that you've interviewed. I'm not shocked. In fact, there are people who are probably like, wait a minute, didn't I already hear this episode? No, I promise you this is a new episode. (laughs) Yeah, it's a relatively small school. We have about 5,000 undergrads and the psychology department was very focused on counseling and clinical professions Mm -hmm. of psychology at the time. So I don't think we even touched on psychology as a topic in the intro course or anything like that. It wasn't until I took one of those kind of one of those like discover your career type classes in psychology where I did a whole bunch of self-assessments and they exposed me to ONET. And so I just Uh remember going on and looking up all these different types of careers that I could do with a, with an undergrad in psychology. And that's where I found out about IO psychology. You have been published very extensively over 50 peer reviewed articles and book chapters. And I'll link to your, your faculty page because I think listeners will want to check that out. But The article I wanted to talk to you about today is one that you co-wrote with Bradley Gray and Kelsey Medeiros. That's right. Uh, You wrote an article around March of last year, Side Effects Associated with Organizational Interventions, a Perspective, and this was in the the journal Industrial and Organizational Psychology. When I think about side effect, um, I think about a medication that I take to help me sleep, but it upsets my stomach and that's a side effect because that's, that's not what I wanted to happen. Is it the same idea for organizational interventions? Yeah, that's exactly right. So just any time experiences kind of a negative event that is unintended, that's associated with some kind of treatment or organizational intervention, that's how we defined a side okay. effect within IO psychology. Okay. So the intention does matter. It has to be an unintended effect. That's right. Yeah, it has to be an unintended effect to be considered a side effect. When we when it's an intended effect, we call those primary effects in the paper um, to kind of distinguish it. I'm about to ask a question that may be really, really stupid, but Go for are, it. There, are there any instances where an effect is both intended and negative? I'm thinking of something like you know, I go to the gym and my trainer prescribes me this workout. And as a result, I have this muscle soreness and that's negative for me, but it was intended. I'm supposed to get sore because it was a good workout. Is there anything equivalent to that in our world? Huh. That's actually one I haven't really thought through. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I would agree with you that the soreness though is a negative because uh, yes, it's, it's painful, but, um, but you probably process it and frame it as like a positive kind of pain. That's actually, hmm. um, doing good things for you. Okay. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. Do, do people, 
I guess some people could go to the gym and work out and get really sore and completely regret their decisions of, <laughs> of going to the gym and never go back. So that's no, I don't possible, think I would I completely suppose. reject it, but I know what the soreness means. You know, there's little micro tears in the muscle and that's what coming back. So intellectually, I know that, but I experience it negatively right. uh, in the same way that, you know, maybe uh, someone getting feedback, the intention is to get them to change their behavior in some way. But we know that by sharing this feedback, they're likely to feel some negative emotions. Yeah, that's a great Not- example. I actually have a, a story I can share really briefly about that for a time after grad school, I started a ethics consulting company for a little while with uh, some of my colleagues. And one of the things we did is we built an assessment that was designed to try to help people learn about what kind of unique cognitive biases that they have kind of blind spots and then give them feedback and help them kind of learn from that and grow. And one of the things we discovered early on was after people took our assessment and received that feedback, even though we took a lot of steps to really try to be careful how we framed everything to not make people feel bad. Um, mm-hmm. We found that, you know, when we measure people's reactions to the tool, there's a very strong negative correlation between um, how people scored on that assessment and, and kind of the nature of, of how negative that feedback was mm-hmm. and how much they liked the tool, right? It was like a negative <laughs> 0.50 correlation. So it's like <laughs> the people who probably need to hear the feedback the most are the most likely to reject it. At least that's what yeah. we found. That, um, yeah. Particular sample that we assessed. Anecdotally, yeah. <laughs> Every time. Um, okay, so a side effect we can think of as uh, its unintended negative consequence of uh, a planned intervention. We throw that word around a lot, but how do we mean it in this sense? Yeah, so we we use the term pretty broadly. So it can be any kind of planned change in um, a policy, a program, uh, or different procedures that are intended to affect employees' behaviors, attitudes, etc. So it can mean any number of things, ranging from you know leadership development to personnel selection, to culture change interventions, to new HR policies around flex work, things like that. Mm-hmm. When I think about side effects in the pharmaceutical context. I know that they run these trials and they ask you to report anything unusual that happens in your body. When I think about our field, I'm struggling to figure out how do we do the equivalent of that? We can't possibly just say, tell us everything about your behavior during the time of the intervention and then look for patterns. So how do we come across side effects to begin with? Yeah, great question. And and there are a lot of challenges to thinking about how to detect these, practically speaking. But one thing I would say is a lot of organizations are already doing quite a bit of work to collect continuous information about their attitudes and health and behaviors and things like that. Um, not just through, you know, annual or biannual kind of culture mm-hmm. surveys, engagement surveys, things like that. But you're seeing some companies even go to much greater lengths to track more kind of like daily, weekly, monthly behaviors, attitudes, things like that. So am I supposed to be scared at this point or because <laughs> I, I am a little bit. Sure. <laughs> I'm not necessarily advocating for organizations, not that they should be collecting data on every facet of sure. well-being and performance and everything all the time, just so that we could detect side effects. Uh, but I think that 
a lot of organizations are tracking a lot of that information already. Uh So at least in those cases, the data is there if you wanted to try to disentangle, you know, using like a quasi-experimental approach Mm -hmm. where we know when the intervention was introduced or we know when it was taken away. Uh, We know when the policy was implemented or we know when the policy changed. And we could correlate that with looking at changes across these different attitudes and behaviors. Can theory be a useful guide in identifying potential side effects? In other words, um, rather than here's this huge lump of data and let's look for a pattern after the intervention, can we say that based on what we know about goal setting theory or whatever, we could expect this side effect to emerge? I think in the paper, it comes across as a pessimistic tone about the promise of theory in terms of it helping us predict where these side effects are going to be. The way that I conceptualize the detection of side effects is that very often it is inductive. It is kind of post hoc. A lot of the time it is because it's things that we didn't intend. Also, a lot of the times tends to be things that we did not anticipate. Mm-hmm. And so it's not even on our radar until you start seeing examples of the intervention not working out or lots of complaints coming from the intervention and then those stories spreading across the field and getting reported across lots of different anecdotal situations which if you if you think about it's not much different than how the side effects are detected in the medical world where a lot of times it is through post hoc reporting can you provide us another example or two of side effects the example that got me started with being interested in this area is goal setting While I was a graduate student at Oklahoma, I was assigned to read this paper by Lisa Ordonez that came out in 2009 called Goals Gone Wild. (laughs) And it was an intriguing review paper that reviews Ordonez and colleagues work on in several studies now and, and found that goal setting can backfire. And even though we know that it's one of the most proven techniques and Mm -hmm the organizational sciences for improving task motivation and focus on tasks. It comes with certain side effects, like people tend to completely ignore fears that you don't incentivize or that you don't clarify are part of the goal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a practical Mm -hmm. example of this is the Wells Fargo scandal from around 2016 when news broke about this, but basically customer service people working for Wells Fargo created um, I believe it was over 2 million fake bank accounts. Uh, <laughs> Let, me Let me see if I can guess. Let me see if I can guess. Yeah. Bank accounts. Okay. So they were being incentivized to open new accounts. So they found some way to create lots of fake accounts and get a bonus and then somehow deactivate them. That's right. And it wasn't just employees finding a way. In, in some branches, they even found that managers were training their employees to create the fake <laughs> no, because their incentives were tied to it as well. If you want a more famous paper about goal setting gone wrong, the Kerr paper from, I think it was 1975, Management Classic, Rewarding A While Hoping for B, that brings up all kinds of other examples of where when you set goals, and especially when you tie valued incentives to those goals, watch out for unanticipated consequences um, because it really is going to motivate people, but there's a cost to it as well. I think the fact that You started describing the situation at Wells Fargo, and based on what you said, I was able to guess what happened based on the incentives, suggest that people really can 
predict this stuff in some cases. Do you recommend sitting down when you're planning a new intervention and saying, okay, what else could this affect? Yes, that's exactly right. And actually one of our anonymous reviewers, when we submitted the paper, prodded us to think more along those lines in terms of practically, how would we implement this? And so we Mm -hmm. came up with this figure that shows all these various decision points that you might consider as a researcher or as a practitioner, as you're preparing to either plan an intervention or implement an intervention to think about on the front end, what possible side effects might result. And in a lot of cases, we might not have strong theory to inform what that would be. So you have to create your own. You have to use your imagination. I I don't have a strong literature telling me exactly what's going to happen. But I think Mm -hmm. if you use your imagination, you could come up with some ideas. And I don't think they're going to be bad ideas. They're probably going to be useful things to track. Absolutely. I think that, I think you might be the first guest in all the years I've been doing this show who said, I got feedback from a peer review. I thought it was good feedback, so I incorporated it and it made the paper better. Hmm. (laughs) I feel like I should be dropping balloons and confetti on you or something right now. You know, I'll take that as high praise because I'm usually, uh, I, when I get the negative reviews, I cower and I don't look at it for several weeks and I have to like pick myself back up off the floor. Well, I appreciate you sharing that too, because it's one of those things that people don't talk about enough and you don't realize like, Hey, yeah, other people feel that way too. One of your other suggestions is to advertise known side effects, just like medications. What would that look like in your mind? How could we do that? That's a great, that's a great question. That's actually the recommendation we had that we got the most pushback on in terms of, is this realistic? How would this work? You know, I accept, yeah, there's a lot of unknowns there. One of the big challenges is we don't have standardized treatments in IO psychology like they do in medicine. If the bottle says acetaminophen on it, you're getting acetaminophen. Doesn't matter which pharmacy you go to. Doesn't matter what brand you buy under. With IO psychology, we use labels for things really loosely. When I'm proposing to implement a new leadership training program at the company and I call it, let's say a charismatic leadership training, Mm -hmm. uh, that can look very different, right? There's different models out there for what charismatic leadership is. And in fact, the differences can be critically important because some models of charisma suggest that, um, if the leader isn't moral and holding up these kind of socialized values, then they're not charismatic. Whereas other models suggest, no, charismatic leadership is value neutral. You don't necessarily have to be moral um, to be a charismatic leader. That's a pretty big gap. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. (laughs) When I look at the ingredients on food or on medicine or side effects on medicine, you know, it's just printed right there on the bottle. So I wonder what the bottle is for us. When you think about doing this, do you think about it as a centralized database or an ethical obligation maybe on the practitioner to share side effects? Something along those lines, some kind of public database that can be updated as practitioners and researchers working in the er- these areas get new information. It was great talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I really appreciate it, Ben. Thanks a lot.